Welcome to Risk Takers Unleashed. My guest today is retail and CPG industry strategist and marketing technology expert, Michael Klein. In today's podcast, we will delve into topics including current market environment, the holiday retail season, and talk about where Michael sees things going from here. Buckle your seatbelts, let's go. Welcome again to Risk Takers Unleashed. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Klein of Klein for Retail Consulting. Michael is a strategic business advisor with deep subject matter expertise in the retail, luxury, and consumer sectors. He is an industry thought leader in global and digital commerce and marketing technology, as well as regular contributor to leading industry events. He works with technology providers, agencies, retailers, consumer brands, and trade associations to improve their business strategies, storytelling, and go-to-market messaging to support business development and pipeline generation. Prior to his uh, starting his consulting practice in 2023, Michael was Global Director of Industry Strategy and Marketing for Retail, Travel, Travel and Consumer Goods, all within the Adobe Digital Experience Business Unit from 2011 through 2022. Michael was responsible for creating, progressing, and closing pipeline as a trusted executive advisor to Adobe's enterprise clients in the sector. Michael's contributions produced a 167% increase in annual recurring revenue for consumer industries. He began his career on the shop floor and worked his way up to the corporate office as a senior merchant and marketer for esteemed brands such as William Sonoma, Harry and David, Discovery Channel Stores, eLuxury.com, part of LVMH, Dean and DeLuca, and Wine.com. Michael is an active member of the National Retail Federation Digital Council. And there's my office assistant, Milo, behind me helping out with the podcast here. I had the great pleasure of working with Michael uh, during my own Adobe tenure. I was a teammate and peer of his covering media, entertainment, and telecom sectors on my side. Michael is not only a colleague of mine, uh, I consider him a close personal friend. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. And Looking forward to our time together and uh, maybe uh, my uh, King, Red, or Billy in my house uh, may join us at some time. Uh, I've got uh, three canines running around in my home. Uh, uh, good thing we're not in the same room because they'd be chasing Milo around the room. <laughs> I'm sure he'd love it, actually. So that that's great. Yeah, there's another one roving around somewhere. So you never know around here. They can erupt into cat fights, what have you. So it's all, always fun. All I have to do is talk into a microphone and put a camera on myself and he jumps into frame. It's guaranteed. So yeah, <laughs> good. Yeah. No, hope, hope to see the animals. That would be good. The more the merrier. So good. <laughs> I, you know, it's, um, you and I, uh, talk a lot. We've kind of taken a similar journey, I think in our professional careers, just covering really different market segments. And, uh, you're one of these people that I talk to, I don't come away from a conversation with you without learning something. And uh, so uh, you're a treasured friend of mine, you know, not only with regards to that, but we have a lot of common interests and everything. I was wondering if you could kind of walk through your uh, professional journey, what got you to here. I loved in the intro, the idea of working your way up from the shop floor. My path is not dissimilar. You know, I love this kind of ground up approach and you hear these stories of, Somebody worked on the, you know, fries or the grill at McDonald's and became the CEO and these things. I think, 
you know, people forget it's a journey, right? You know, and we're kind of traveling through this continuum. You don't wake up one day as a subject matter expert in retail and luxury. You've kind of earned those stripes. And so I was wondering if you could kind of, you know, talk us through what the journey's been to you, some of the high points, maybe the low points that you learned from. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And uh, I always enjoy kind of reminiscing on how I got to where I am today. Uh, like I, like you said in, in my bio, I uh, started on the shop floor. I grew up in New York City. Yeah. Uh, I lived in Manhattan, and uh, my first job was working the deli counter and the slicer uh, in New York City and started that way. Uh, it then was how I was able to support my partying activities in college and uh, <laughs> work through university and part-time managing a cheese shop up in the Chestnut Hill Mall in Massachusetts when I went to school at Brandeis. And when I got out of school, excuse me, I, I started working for a catering company uh, that lasted for a couple of years, continuing to work on the shop floor as the manager of Newman and Bogdanoff caterers on the Upper East Side started to learn more and more about the business and then had an opportunity to move to the wholesale side of the business. Uh, I've worked for Dean and DeLuca two times in my career and that was the first time I joined Dean and DeLuca. And I was knocking on doors at the five-star white tablecloth restaurants of New York City. Uh, I have some really interesting stories from that time in my life because I was able to meet early in their career some of the celebrity chefs that we know today, whether it's Bobby Flay, Daniel Ballou, John George Von Richten, Jeffrey Zakarian. Uh, I was selling them products. I had yeah great opportunity and great stories selling to some of the best chefs in New York City, selling olive oils and truffles and caviar. Uh, and then moved over to back into merchandising with Balducci's. Yep. Uh, I'm not going to go through every single stop, but you know, the lesson here was that, uh, I really got to get my roll up my sleeves and understand what it was like to be on that side of the counter, yep. uh, moved West with my family and my two month old son. When, uh, I moved to Harry and David. And that's when I really started to understand direct-to-consumer and what it was like to be a database marketer because Harry and David is probably, in my opinion, one of the most sophisticated database marketers that I had worked with at that point in my career where they really understood uh, list management. They understood what it took to uh, vary books and test books and covers and page layouts really learned the art and the science of database marketing and direct-to-consumer catalog, which, yeah. as many of us know, is really what led to the internet. The, yeah. you know, catalog retail was the harbinger to what we saw as the internet. And when I was at Harry and David, and this is back in 97, 98, my manager came to me and said, you're now going to be responsible for this thing called the internet. Right. <laughs> and w- those were the days where we didn't have teams specifically set up for dot com because it was so new. 
Oh yeah. And and we also I think we've also come a little full circle as we're we're talking about this where yeah. those days the the person that was merchandising either the store or the catalog yeah. was also yeah. responsible for the web. That's right. We matured at some point and then we had teams that were dedicated to merchandising the internet. The idea of omni-channel, multi-channel, hybrid retail, whatever you want to call it, has now, I think, pivoted us back yeah. to where we were in those days because we we can't have teams that are siloed off into different parts of the business. And uh, I see quite often, yeah. more often than not, the teams are now coming together and they're under one umbrella yeah. so that you can actually deliver to a customer a seamless experience. So uh, that's the late 90s. I then moved to California from Oregon in 99 for Louis Vuitton, uh, the e-luxury program. Yeah. Uh, stupid money was being spent at that time. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, flying to France uh, at the drop of a hat, uh, ah. first class on Air France, drinking Dom Perignon and eating caviar uh, my way over there. I, w I would but, have assumed Moet, actually, but Dom Perignon will do. <laughs> Dom that's... Perignon is part of the it's Moet Don House. It's in the umbrella. You learn, see, I learned something every time I talk to you. I said yep. that, and there we are. Yeah, Dom Perignon <laughs> is the, the tete de cuvée of uh, Moet Chandon. That makes but, a long uh, trip a little bit more tolerable, doesn't it? I think. Oh, without a doubt. Without a <laughs> doubt. And uh, yeah, whether it was the uh, web, web van deliveries that came to the office or uh, yeah, those, those were certainly interesting times in the late 90s and 2000, 2001 when everybody was throwing stupid money at anything that uh, had a dot com at the end of it. Glorious. Yeah. And uh, then... Uh, had my first experience of being downsized and yep. being part of a reduction in force. Yep. Uh, I always knew that I'd be less than 10% of the business because we were so focused yep. on fashion and beauty. And I was the food yep. and wine guy yep. uh, where I still had a $50 million business that was on, on paper, yep. never really happened. Uh, so I, I, that was kind of when we think about risk and I, and I definitely took yeah. some of my early risk by moving my family from one state to another. Uh, I, there was a, another dot com in between all of this. And, uh, but I was, I, I was, I thought, and I still think that I was kind of a few years ahead of my time in what I was seeing out there and what I thought the possibilities were in what we often talk about, the art of the possible. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was first at eLuxury and we were going out to vendors to get them on board and have them feature their products on the website. Uh, I had a CD-ROM that I would throw into my laptop that showed, and this is in 1999-2000, yeah. it showed uh, spinning shoes and you could see a shoe in 3D. Oh yeah, which it was re revolutionary at that, point. at that time. Yeah, it, no, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, no. was, it was way ahead of where we actually could deliver on that promise from a customer experience and technology perspective. But we yeah. were showing what we could do for brand like Christian Louboutin or Dom Perignon or yeah. 
Baccarat or any of these uh, high-end luxury brands, not only in fashion and beauty, but in home and food and uh, gourmet uh, products. Sure. Uh, so I, I then learned the hard lesson of uh, what is on paper doesn't always necessarily come to fruition. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, spent some time uh, on my own. Uh, 2001 was a tough year because then, because that's when I left the luxury and they started doing their reductions. Yeah. Uh, and 9-11 hit. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, it took everybody for uh, a, a loop in terms of yep. not only personally, but professionally. Yes. Uh, I I did odd jobs uh, yeah. doing different things, in, primarily in food and, and wine, yeah. serving and catering, uh, you name it, just to make sure. ends meet. Yeah. And then in 2002, when things started to come back again and there was a bit of a rebound, uh, I found myself at Williams-Sonoma. Yeah. And uh, I always had this kind of, uh, you know, looking from the window and looking inside to William Sonoma and wanted to, to work there. And it was a great company. Yeah. Um, I certainly had some challenges in terms of the culture and the politics that happened there. The, yeah. I, I always say that uh, the best thing that ever happened to me at William Sonoma, that, that's where I met my wife. Uh, right. My wife was the head of store operations, and we met uh, in the halls of Williams-Sonoma Corporate. That's great. Uh, but again, I, I learned so much in a very short period of time there about uh, multi-store retail, yeah. what it takes to get products in the door and out the door with yeah. 800 locations across United States. And at that time, when I was there, we were expanding yeah. internationally into Canada, which was pretty amazing. And uh, more lessons learned, especially from a consumer package goods perspective, because yeah. of the labeling requirements. I was, sure. I was the candy man. Yeah, right. So, right. Uh, I was responsible. My categories were seasonal food and books. And uh, so peppermint bark, ice cream kits, uh, pumpkin spice bread, all those uh, great products that the still live stuff. to today yeah. that were under the Williams-Sonoma label. Uh, and then the other thing that was I always talk about, which was a great uh, experience, was I was the head of cookbooks. So I got to sit side by side with Chuck Williams oh, cool. and edit the Williams-Sonoma cookbooks for two years. Oh, that's awesome. Pretty, pretty cool, pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, uh, I, I've been very fortunate over my career, whether it was a Dean and DeLuca, Balducci's, yeah. William Sonoma, that yeah. uh, I've worked directly for those founders, those pioneers of yeah. specialty food. And uh, up until that point in my career, I was very much, you know, I was a food guy. I was, you know, yeah. retail food was was what I lived and breathed. And then uh, after a few years of uh, working that and doing some more consulting, uh, worked on a variety of catalogs, specialty food companies, Clearbook Farms, got involved with Wine.com. Yeah. I then moved to the other side of the business with Discovery Channel. Uh, got into toys and fan gear and you know, kind of yeah. your side of the business, right? Sure. With media and entertainment. Yeah. So... Uh, learned more about that, and then 2008, fast forward, I, I joined Mercado and then Omniture, 
and have now been on the tech side of retail and consumer goods for the past 14 years. And the one thing that I've always learned, and I think I learned this early, I'll always recognize Andy Balducci because when I worked for Andy Balducci, he was probably about 70 years old. Yeah. And while he was very set in his ways, uh, he always was able to listen and he, he gave everybody the floor now whether or not he agreed with you and i have stories of him throwing uh, trays of dried fruit at me because he didn't like the way they were merchandised oh dear but uh and yeah he was he was certainly a bit eccentric and very set in the way he wanted things done but he always respected other people's opinion and a healthy dialogue, healthy healthy conversation, which I think is yeah. something that I feel that I've been able to bring forward in my career. And uh, sometimes that comes off as being maybe a little contentious or combative. But you know, for me, it's always about trying to get to the best result for the business and for the customer. And sometimes that that means having hard conversations. And uh, I've had uh, a great journey when you and I worked together at Adobe and have been able to travel the world, work with some of the best brands out there, understanding what their strategies were. So um, I've had the fortunate risk taking of being with some startups and some small companies. And I've been under the umbrella of some large, well-established, multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies that... Uh, I had to take different type of risks yeah. uh, in order to maintain my position and uh, survive for over a decade yeah. at uh, at a place like Adobe. So yeah, uh, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey and has brought me to today where uh, I get to work with uh, a continued bunch of different customers and uh, have put my shingle out there since May. That's great. I, you know, you touch on so many things that really resonate with me. The, the listening thing I think is huge. And you hear this from really early on in your career working in most professional environment environments, be a good listener. You know, you really must sharpen your listening skills. Uh, and then you realize how seldom it actually happens in practice. And you work with people who, uh, you think they're listening or you feel like maybe you made an impact in a conversation you had and you realize by their actions later or something happens where you come to the, I guess, conclusion that perhaps they weren't listening so well or uh, gave the guise of giving you an audience. But in fact, that was never a consideration for them, whatever outcome it is. It's, And so I think I have come to treasure that in people that I work with now. And I, I look for it, as I'm sure you do. Uh, and it means everything to me. Um, you are uh, underselling yourself. You're a great listener. And I, I think it's a skill to be developed. Uh, I hope that I've refined it throughout the years. But I look for that in people that I work with because it, it really is. If we're going to work in teams, you must consider the team input. Otherwise, why why not just do a solo thing? It's just easier. You know, it's uh, Andres Segovia just sat on the stage. He played his guitar. He didn't have to worry about the band, other people's feelings. He just did his thing. And maybe he knew this is the way to express myself. And then, you know, there's an orchestra somewhere where there's 97 people really figuring out how to work together. 
they're listening to each other. So I, I, I love that metaphor and that never goes away. I don't see a, a world where that, where that ever goes away. And that's a, a huge part of it. The Dean and DeLuca, I, so I, I used to love that place and I, you know, we went back out to Manhattan for Adobe and I didn't realize that it, it had closed down. So I'm walking around <laughs> looking for Dean and DeLuca and then, you know, finally asked someone, I know there was a Dean and DeLuca here. What happened? You're like, oh, they, they closed. And I, I, it struck me like, this is a different Manhattan. I mean, this would have been 2019, 2018. I, they closed a couple of years before, a few years before. And it, it, it seemed to me to be a real paradigm shift in um, certainly, you know, high-end food and beverage products, but just for the city in general, where it was kind of, wow, we're moving out of what I felt was refined niche types of stores into a little bit more of a big box environment. Fast forward to, uh, you know, kind of the, the, rail yards in hell's kitchen that they've developed this whole it's it's a different world now i think manhattan and you've you've had this i think career arc that's taken you through a lot of different retail paradigms and and you touch on that a lot in your in your background it's really kind of you know as someone who is i think also uh, an esthete i enjoy good wine good food the whole thing you and i share that that passion it's it's kind of interesting to watch things change and, and emerge. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's so much a uh, product of Manhattan or this, the the climate of retail yeah. and commerce in Manhattan. Yeah. Knowing enough of what's gone on in the background, and if you yeah. look at the history of Dean and DeLuca yeah. and Balducci's as well, yeah, uh, they've been tossed around a bit by different holding companies. Yeah both here in the U.S. as well as out of Asia. Yeah. And a lot of those holding companies really did not do the right thing by those yeah. brands. Yeah. Uh, and the irony is, is that you can't find a Dean, a Dean and DeLuca in New York. Yeah. But you can find a Dean and DeLuca in Tokyo. <laughs> it's, so, it's like Carnegie Deli, right? The same thing where I think they just moved it to Las Vegas or license the brand, but yeah, they let that. That's I, a license deal, right? Exactly. Yeah, but um, that, and probably again, the, they bought some recipes. It broke so, my heart, um, you know? Yeah. I think there's a lot behind the scenes that we don't see. And, yeah. uh, those businesses are not easy to run when you think yeah. about high end perishable food and <laughs> yeah. it's not cookie cutter, like a grocery store, no. And no. whether it's a Kroger or Ralph's or even a whole food. So yeah, uh, there are still pockets of, whether it be uh, Fairway, uh, Zabar's, there are still some legacy gourmet food retailers in New yeah. York City. Uh, but I think that some of those products have become more ubiquitous. Yeah. And you, know, you couldn't, in the 70s or 80s, 90s, you couldn't find a bottle of balsamic vinegar in every supermarket. No. Now you can. It's yeah. it's everywhere, right? You can yeah. get a great pot, uh, bag of of pasta, Dicheco yeah. or other brands at a supermarket, and you yeah. don't have to go out of your way to get some of those products. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think it, it's definitely a different world, and the yeah. excuse me, online has certainly also, I'm sure, taken a bite out of that as well, where. Uh, I go direct to consumer. I'm here in, yeah. in Oakland, California. Yeah. 
and once or twice a year I indulge in white truffles. Yeah. And I buy I get them in the mail through the truffle guy that I used to work with that sold them to Dean and DeLuca. So yeah. I don't have to go to the middleman. I can go right to the source. Oh, that's a good uh, good connection to have right there. It's um I I was thinking to myself, there was a point in history and I, I think we discussed this. I was in the wine business for a time back in the early nineties, hundred years ago. The most, this shocked me even then, um, the most sold wine at one point, uh, and I think it was up to about the late 70s in the United States, was Gallo Hardy Burgundy. The uh, gallon jug of what was, you know, a mishmash of Central Valley, you know, plonk, (laughs) generously. Uh, But yet, you know, we've seen this kind of, I think, education of consumers, Uh, You mentioned kind of a product ubiquity, even at kind of the high end, getting into, you know, what I would certainly consider uh, luxury brands. It is so distribution is everywhere. Awareness has risen, I think, certainly in no small part to digital marketing and kind of the emergence of a layer of marketing and awareness that sits above retail bricks and mortar. And I, I, I want you, you know, again, this is your world. It, it's uh, maybe talk a little bit about, and you touched on it at the end of your own personal journey, this idea of getting into more of the technology that enables what we're living in now, this idea of the future of stores, uh, online, digital uh, marketing technologies, things that, that you and I leverage for our our clients, both at Adobe and beyond, I, I think it's yeah, it's such a unique time, uh, and you have such a unique vision on this. Might be interesting to kind of hear where, where you you know pulse check of where we are now. What is it going to look like in the future? These types of things. Well, I think we've come through an interesting journey of you know, the internet started, especially for retail, in the mid '90s. Uh, Amazon 1995, I think, is the date that is well documented on when they really started to make a a stamp on the on the landscape of retail. Yeah. So we've gone through these experiences and uh, the evolution of listing pages and what it looks like to sell thousands of goods. Uh, it certainly is not a very high end from, for the most part, for many years, it was a very kind of vanilla bland experience. Uh, and it didn't, I, I've always been an advocate for the store. Uh, our friend Mark Andreessen was well quoted that stores would eventually become dinosaurs. And I think he mentioned that uh, nearly 20 years ago now, but right. uh, I, I never subscribe to that and believe that uh, there is an interesting play between online and offline, and we continue continue to see that yeah. the synergies and the convergence of those two are improving day by day. Yeah, uh, and I don't think we can have any conversation around technology or where we're going without talking about AI and Gen AI and how that's going to affect retail in a positive way. We certainly know that there are challenges uh, around 
privacy, copyright infringement, yeah. uh, guardrails around the how, how a brand's product line is going to be represented online and not infringe yeah. on another brand's product line uh, using Gen AI. Yeah. Uh, but I think that we are seeing some of these technologies will enhance the product discovery, customer journey. Uh, if I'm in the middle of nowhere and I don't have access to that great bottle of wine or yeah. that great uh, product, or I can't get to Madison Avenue and go shopping in the boutiques, uh, or even uh, if I if I need that one, I'm in the middle of a bathroom meet, remodel and I just spent a lot of money online and never went into a showroom to right. pick out all my fixtures. So yeah. whether it's the, the little screw or the toilet paper holder or the great bottle of wine, yep. access to product is more abundant than ever. There's always going to be this balance between uh, the experience I want and the engagement I want in shopping versus I need something and I want to get it and I want to get it as fast as possible. So yep. I think we're at an interesting tipping point where technology is going to enable us to do either or, and it's not going to be one or the other. It's not going to be yeah. 100% uh, online. It's not going to be 100% offline. And it's going to be – those who can do both well are yeah. going to be the ones that, that win at the end of the day. Well, I think certainly when you think in terms of luxury products, there's a visceral connection and feel to the product. In the case of food and wine, you want – there's a tactile quality to it. You certainly want to taste it. All of those things I think are critically important and don't go away. So it turns into – that's a great introduction to the product or it can expand your palate into new areas. And then of course you can procure those online once you resonate with the product and, and can kind of, you know, go, all right, well, I'm going to reorder that. That was a great wine. Let's, uh, let's buy a case of that or what, whatever the case may be, but uh, almost like the Tesla model in a way where you think of, there's not really a dealership per se, uh, but you go in, there are a couple of cars, you sit down, you can config uh, your own car on, you know, their, their terminals there with a, with a customer representative and kind of, you know, build that out. So it's, it has reached, I think you're right to point out this hybrid model because I'm starting to see it more and more. I'm with you. There's something about, uh, I'm a guitar guy. So when somebody says, you know, Hey, I want to sell you a guitar. Well, I've, I've got to sit with it for 10 minutes before I can even begin to assess whether this is going to work for me. They're very personal, right? You know, and I think all that, you know, kind of rings, rings true. You had to, you had to mention Tesla, which I can't help but like think of that, you know, Elon dude who not, 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 not high on my list, but. Are you, you're, so you're putting a big X on Elon? Is that what you're doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. Fair I, enough. Uh, speaking of automotive, uh, yeah. the other thing that was interesting, and I just had this call today with a prospective client, uh, that automotive is going in a very interesting direction where uh, the automobile is the biggest computer uh, that's driving around on the highways these days. Yeah. Uh, the sensors that are available in there. 
Uh, and the idea that I yeah. may have to sit for 10 or 15 minutes yeah. at a charging station with the EVs. Yeah. And what am I going to do for those 10 or 15 minutes? And there's conversation yeah. around bringing more commerce inside of the vehicle, either for, you know, if I'm yeah. hands-free or yeah. if I'm on autopilot or I'm sitting around at a charging station, how do I engage in either yeah. entertainment or in shopping while I'm sitting in my vehicle? And I also, uh, I know you mentioned Tesla, but uh, if given all the money that I could spend on a vehicle, uh, I have a friend who just got the uh, the EQS, yeah. the Mercedes-Benz. Wow, that thing is- Pretty good, yeah. The, the technology and the intelligence in that vehicle is off the charts, off I, the charts. I think there's going to be significant competition for, for Tesla going forward. And I'm hearing some rumblings from, you know, BMW and, and obviously the Mercedes sounds like great advocacy for that. Yeah, so it's yeah. It's not inexpensive though. Oh, Certainly. no, it's they're six figures. They're brutal. I, I wonder if I don't turn into a dinosaur with this because I, I literally, I have such a hard time personally so my brother owns a Tesla and he's, he's constant. I, I own a share or two of Elon stock and have for a long time. It's been, it's been a decent performer, certainly up to the last couple months. And my brother's like, well, why don't, why don't you own one? I'm like, oh, well, uh, cause I like gasoline, <laughs> which is horrible to say, you know, and I know, I know I can see the momentum. The tide is definitely shifting, you know, it's, it's there, but there's something, you know, you talk about that visceral quality again, where it's, I don't know, I like hitting the starter button and the, you know, BMW roars to life and the exhaust note and the whole thing. And I, I don't know. Um, yeah, so it's I may weird. I, 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 I have a, a gas powered car myself and yeah. uh, my son has a hybrid and I just visited him yeah. and I drove his car a few times and when he was off doing some other things, so I borrowed mm. his car and it, I, I couldn't even, didn't even know the thing was even on. It's amazing. It, yeah. uh, which you eventually get used to. Yeah. But it certainly was a, a, a weird experience to hit that button and then wonder, can I, is this thing actually ready to, to move? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's different, you know, and it is, I, I think it is, uh, look, it's a sea change, you know, in technology and it's really coming our way. And then the ability to disengage from the driving experience also kind of blows my mind, you know, where it's, I'm old, you know, I like turn off the phone, I'm driving, you know, I'm focused. It's dangerous out there, you know, let's face it. Uh, but, but these sort of autopilot, which is clearly, you talk about, you know, AI and technology changing with all of that, just the whole ability to process code in this way, uh, and the machine learning algorithms that that drive this from, you know, it's recognizing a stop sign, it's applying the brakes at the right point so you don't spill your soda on yourself, you know, all these things. I mean, just magic, really, and kind of fun yeah. to, to watch where it all all goes. It, it's um, with with generative AI, uh, I'm seeing some uh, areas, certainly in media and entertainment, where that's coming into play, you know, in terms of obviously from a production standpoint it it can be incredible um i think over reliance on it has its own challenges i see people you know in college writing essays and doing all these things maybe not the best use of it but uh certainly you know you see where the capabilities are going are you seeing 
things in retail and CPG, like comes to mind for me, uh, something like um, product customization or, or like kind of a semi-custom uh, environment. Are there areas that, that a lot of us aren't thinking about when it comes to retail CPG and generative AI? What we're going to be seeing more is uh, for merchandisers and creatives, product owners, uh, greater capability to uh, test and iterate on new products. That That's going to be one area that I definitely believe in. Yeah. Uh, the capabilities of AI that allow you to create variations uh, of a particular product and be able to put them out there. And also you know, with some of the well-known Asian retailers that are here now in the United States, like Shein and Timu, uh, they're, they're using AI certainly to create and understand what's happening with yeah. the consumer and quickly yeah. get product out the door. I, the idea of fast fashion is faster than ever before. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that's going to be one area. Uh, the other area, which I'm working with a client right now that is in user experience and product discovery yeah. is the idea of conversational commerce. Yeah. 10 years ago, Alexa, uh, Amazon brought out Alexa and with this hope of, conversation, the promise of conversational commerce, where you're going to be able to talk to Alexa yep. and do all your shopping and you'd never have to go to a website or lift a finger. It'd all be voice, yep. all voice command. Yeah. And we know, especially in the early days of Alexa and up until recently, the primary uses of a, a product like Alexa, a tool like Alexa was, uh, what's the weather? Uh, how much, you know, help me boil, time the egg on boiling or set a timer in the kitchen yeah. uh, or reorder a product that I have already ordered from Amazon. Those yeah. are kind of the top three uh, activities that engage with Alexa. Now, uh, we with natural language processing, Gen AI being more capable, yeah. the idea of having a digital conversation will evolve and become that much better yeah. where uh, the preset parameters, the sorry, I didn't understand that will eventually become extinct because the machines yeah. and the technology, the data behind all of it and the yeah. ability in large language models to answer those questions like a human will evolve and become uh, much better and, and allow us to have a better conversation. So uh, personalization, conversational commerce, and then yeah. retailers have already been using AI around supply chain, forecasting, yeah. making sure they put the right product in the right place at the right time. Yeah, that That is just going to accelerate more because they've already been tapping into parameter-based and uh, structured data AI, yeah. and with Gen AI, that's just going to become that much more efficient and faster. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. You touched on something uh, in that uh, this whole idea of shipping and logistics, and I know you're you're a student of kind of macroeconomics, as am I. Uh, there are some, I would say, cautionary 
red flags out there, I think, for us to at least examine. And I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on the impacts to retail CPG. So I'll throw a couple examples out. Uh, both of these were actually somewhat stunning to me to see. Uh, Maersk, the shipping line, they were a client of mine while I was at Gartner, actually, uh, announced headcount reductions, I think, on the magnitude of uh, 14, 15,000 headcount um, coming off of various areas of the company, but, you know, definitely in terms of shipping operations, that area, roughly uh, 10 plus percent of the workforce. So non-trivial to be sure. Here in Nashville, uh, Yellow uh, Trucking announced a bankruptcy a couple months back, and it doesn't look like they're going to come through that uh, as of this writing. And so are these things that should are, are these things that we need to worry about going into the 4Q retail holiday season? Are these longer term headwinds? Uh, are these just kind of cost cautionary cost reduction movements? What what are you seeing out of this, and what are you hearing? I think that there's a variety of factors that contribute to what you've seen with the mask and the uh, yellow lines. Yeah. Um, some of it is AI. Some yeah. of it is robotics and efficiencies in yeah. supply chain that yeah. may not require humans to be engaged in lower value activities. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of it. I think also the Amazon effect, where Amazon now controls so much of the supply chain for a, such a large portion of commerce and yeah. retail yeah. that, and they they want to control their supply chain so they may not be leveraging yeah. some of those particular shippers and, and lines. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think it's gloom and doom in any okay. way where we saw, whether it was in Long Beach or here in Oakland, the yeah. ports backed up with containers. Right. Consumers certainly should not be worried as much as they may have been in the past that they're not going to get their holiday gifts under the okay. tree in time. I, I don't think okay. that we're going to see as much of that. Uh, the bottleneck or some of the challenges and the costs uh, are going to continue to be at what we would call the last mile. Yeah. And the UPSs and the FedExs and yeah. the postal services being able to deliver on the promises and the volume that they see spike at this time of year over between now and January 1st. So yeah. uh, I think that those are some of the factors that would come into play with what you've seen. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we're going to have okay. supply, supply chain issues. Okay. And if anything, uh, we may have areas where we have too much product. We so I can tell you on uh, on the telco side of the house, and I, I work with uh, you know quite a few of those. It, there is uh, an oversupply problem that's really going right back to OEM. So uh, Nokia, who I have uh, association with, you know they are really feeling the pain there. So I I concur with your analysis. I, I am glad to hear it's probably certainly for Yellow and and Maersk. Uh, it is probably a consolidation that was um, headed our way and maybe just a cost optimization play. So hopefully it's nothing, you know, more than that. And, 
you know, not not headlines you ever want to see. FedEx and UPS, to your point, uh, have both issued forward guidance that's you know taking the numbers down from uh, at least what they had stated uh, you know some quarters back. So yeah, we'll 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 keep an eye on that one. But good to good to get your take on that. One other We're not area. Not supposed to agree with everything. I, aren't we supposed to get into an argument on these podcasts? Or... <laughs> I don't disagree. I think it makes sense. I, I, so I literally threw those out at you. I came across those and I thought, you know, Michael's the guy to talk to this stuff because I see everything and I go, oh, all right. I guess the world is truly caving in. So I better sell my three shares of Tesla no. and get out of the market. <laughs> well, I know we wanted to talk about the holiday and whether it's the National Retail Federation or the U.S. consensus yeah. and commerce boards as well as our old friends at Adobe yep. who put out their holiday forecast. Yep. We're looking at a, about a 4% increase, give or take. Uh, yep. Everyone now is kind of hedging their bets and they yep. say three to 5% is what yep. we may see as an increase in holiday sales yep. coming up. Uh, the one thing that I'm observing, well, there are two areas I would want to touch on here is different product categories, different demographics, and buying tangible products versus buying experiences. Ah. So let, let me cover it off kind of in those three buckets. Yeah. And it, just in terms of what I've been speaking about, and, and it, it, I almost feel like, because I haven't documented this, I, I, I need to write a blog about this or something. Should. But uh, we've got certain products that are going to continue to do well. Uh, we'll see electronics always is big winners at this time of year. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you saw Apple had some major announcements in the past less than two weeks. I think it was maybe early next last week yep. where they just have some just off the charts, yeah. new chips in there. Yeah. Uh, the MacBooks and yeah. Uh, the iMac and everything where just the, the speeds yep. and the battery power are just off the charts for those that are into Apple products. Yep. Um, luxury, we're seeing a little bit of a rebound. Mm -hmm. and But we also know that the going to the grocery store is more expensive than it was a year ago. So uh, all of these categories are going to be challenged uh, in some way, and some will get, be the benefactor of what we see it going into the holiday. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, demographically, uh, those that have been challenged or affected by a layoff, uh, they're going to be certainly careful of where they spend. Uh, but the yep. market is doing well. Right. Uh, stock market just in the past two weeks has certainly not hurt those that are investing there. Uh, folks, and this is, I think, from NRF. NRF has indicated yeah. that consumers are going to spend as much as $1,000 more this year than last year wow. on holiday gifts. I mean, think about that. Yeah. Not, it was 900 and change, I think. That's a lot of money. It is. If, if you think about the averages. So uh, that's not going to be across all demographics, but yeah. certainly those that are in a good position, I think there's rebound mentality 
we're we're not in a presidential election year, yeah. so there's less anxiety. Yeah, I'm sure next year there'll be heightened anxiety as we get closer to November 5th of uh, 2020, or yeah, no, it'll be November 5th of 2024. I think so. so. Uh, you know, so those factors are involved. Um, and then on the experiential side is, uh, and this is where I'm not sure if we're going to get to that four or five percent in holiday sales because travel, an area that I was responsible for at Adobe, yeah, travel is just off is is really coming back strong. Mm-hmm. People are, you know, they know that COVID is behind them. Uh, they know they've been perhaps vaccinated, so if God forbid they had COVID, they're not going to die from it. Travel is going to take a bite out of some of the spend that somebody may have purchased in goods. So I think that there's going to be a variety of factors that uh, indicate whether or not a particular retailer has a strong holiday. Uh, Of course, the holiday is extended. Right. It already started. You know, we're here recording this on uh, November the 8th, but the holiday started a, a month ago in October. We had Amazon Prime Days yeah. in the, uh, what was that, the 10th and the 11th or the That's 11th right. and the 12th? Yeah. So the season is elongated. Everybody's yeah. trying to get a bite out of it. Yeah. There are always going to be some winners and losers uh, and those that deliver a better experience. And I know I've lived the experience thing, but I still, I, I believe it. I not just drank the Kool-Aid of Adobe. Yeah. That. Yeah. If I deliver better experience in the shopping experience, in in the shopping process, in the fulfillment process, in the post purchase, yeah. then I'm more than likely to maintain my customers and and grow customers uh, as I go through the season. Let's uh, talk a little bit about that because that's near and dear to my heart too. And certainly, I think um, we follow a similar path to what you've gone through in terms of of uh, marketing technology and how that supports retail CPG luxury. We're, we're undergoing a very similar revolution in media and entertainment. And I think to an extent, the telcos are jumping on board, but certainly nowhere near the velocity of the, the media and entertainment organizations. And I, I, like you, I've done my thing for quite a time. And I think back to the 90s when I was kind of a cub uh consultant working for Pricewaterhouse Coopers we'd go into universal and the conversation was very much you know ERP remediation uh data silos i mean ho hum and they just they, they didn't want to hear about everything this is in the era of physical media so you know just a different time now uh, i can't think of very many kind of industries as a whole certainly yours um, is there uh, that are advancing in terms of their technological underpinnings to better understand the customer. And so that has been a revolution uh, for the likes of Netflix, for Disney streaming, for relationships with park customers across the board. And so it does factor in a lot of what we did at Adobe, I think applies here. I'd say the grand revolution for me, the thing that I keep my eye on is this idea of platform, which is to say uh, an aggregation of data in an intelligent way where you're able to link it back to 
the device level and then aggregate in the case of a multiple device uh, entity like myself, like you, like most of our families, you know, we're all running two, three, four, five devices. So being able to understand, okay, well, at this point in the day, Mike's on his phone. At this point in the day, he's on his laptop. Uh, in the evening, he's sitting in front of a flat screen. And so figuring out, you know, my day, what I'm looking at at any part of the day, and then figuring out demographically, what am I inclined to watch, buy, participate in on that journey? And so I think for me, platform is the the real big thing to build on and optimize. And we were beginning to do that, I think, in our time at, at Adobe, but love your take and kind of making that relevant back into retail CPG. Uh, and feel free to disagree if, if it's not platform. But to me, I, I think leveraging that. And then, of course, we had all our applications that sit on top of platform. But once you get that right, uh, it gets a lot easier, this idea of really nailing down the customer and figuring out what they're all about. But interested in your world on that, I think that that's, uh, for me, that's uh, it's a small revolution at a minimum. Yeah, I guess this is where we can start to argue because <laughs> Good. I think now that I've, I've, I've left the mothership, yeah, uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all. That's, yeah. that's probably the thing that yeah. would be the first comment I throw out there when I yep. hear platform. The other p side of the coin of the equation that mm -hmm. is the reality in most industries and most businesses and retail in particular is what does it take to put in the platform? Yeah. What do I have to undo to take advantage of that? And is that worth the, you know, is there enough juice for the squeeze to unravel everything I've been doing for the past 20 years. Yeah. So, and there certainly are many businesses, enterprises, our customers that have gone down that path. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd say that, I don't, I, I don't know if I would want to put a percentage on it, but again, it's not a one size fits all where that might make sense to go platform if legacy technology has just not been maintained yeah. and you just got to get rid of it. And it's yeah. just, you know, and, and here is this platform with associated solutions that can maybe take me 24 months to get everything in place. Yeah. But I'm going to be in a much better place if I do, if I pull the trigger now and do that rather than try to do it bit by bit. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, and then there's the other mentality where there is best of breed in many point solutions. And depending on what my goals are and what I'm trying to accomplish, uh, I might be able to get there with a very strategic series of technologies that yeah. are going to move the needle of my business. Yeah. And I don't have to rip and replace yeah. and put in this whole big monolithic platform. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's the thing that comes up for me. Yeah. And then going back to the idea of gen AI yeah. or any artificial intelligence being traditional or gen, yeah. many of the best of breed solutions that are being brought to market offer AI as part of the solution. Yeah. So I don't need to have a platform that promises to do everything for me and bring me AI because more mm -hmm. often than not, 
yeah. a lot of these point solutions are going to have some element of AI that comes along with it. Yeah. Uh, and then the data piece, the unified profile, the customer understanding all the different touch points, that's important. Yeah. But what's more important is context, I think. Yeah. And this has been a big conversation around retail that I may be able to put you into a segment or into a group uh, based on previous activities and transactions, behaviors. But does that always indicate what my current state of mind is? So really being able to take some of that historical and blend it and match it with real-time in-context signals is is critical yeah because if i'm only delivering personalization and experiences engagement on what i know about yeah. you from 24 hours 24 days yeah. 24 months ago uh, i may be missing the mark so you know one of my analyst friends uh has a great statement that is no personalization is better than bad personalization ha huh. I have to agree there. Yeah, it's well, I, you know, and I think you touched on something really interesting to me. And it's it's not that we weren't doing this as marketers a long time ago, 20 years ago, I think in terms of. So if I'm trying to define a subscriber group, I'm aggregating data, whatever I've collected, hopefully a good array of different attributes per a certain demographic. And then I, you know, work through that. It's a it's a K-means cluster, right? I mean, that's really what we're outputting to, how I define that cluster, the attributes that inform that. What we've done with the machine learning, the AI, is being able to output to that much more quickly and then hopefully act and decide what campaign activity we're going to do, what uh, targeting we're going to do, all these types of things. So I think it is, you know, to your earlier point, it's a speed issue. Uh, it's an accuracy issue. Uh, so instead of defining six demographic archetypes, I can now define 60, which gets me to be much more of an accurate marketer to your point of, let's call it quality, right? You know, we're, okay, so I watch Major League Baseball. I watch college football. I do this. So I'm, I'm likely to like these other things and you can decide how to market to me. Um, if you market to me with, I still call it soccer, um, I know it's football, but you're not going to hit the mark, right? You know, and it's just because of who I am and what I like. And so I think there's there's an accuracy to this. And that would be a miss for me to say, well, if he if he likes college football and baseball, then he likes sports. So therefore, soccer's good. You know, well, no. <laughs> so I think, you know, layered in what you're saying is there's there's a lot of this. I guess we're able to hopefully do a lot of this more quickly a lot of this more accurately, you know, and we'll see. And by the way, you know, no, no, um, not shilling for the old firm, you know, Salesforce is out there doing this. Um, you know, listen, all of the sort of major web scalers have a, a toe in the water at a minimum here. Uh, and we're talking a lot about B2C interactions. I think when you break out into the world of, we have colleagues who work much more in the B2B space, high tech, et cetera. Um, it's, a, it's a different thing, you know, so then you enter into the fray 
uh, you know, Azure, uh, AWS, et cetera. It gets, gets, the waters get muddy pretty quickly on generic platform discussions. But anyways, appreciate your points on that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting evolution. Let's remember that it was not too long ago that everybody, especially in your world, right, were talking about DMPs, that acronym, yeah. Data yes. Management Platform. Yes. And then it evolved to CDP, a Customer Data Platform. Yep. So, uh, yeah. and data lakes and who knows what's on the horizon because uh, there's a lot of opinion that, yeah, customer data platform could be important, but do I really need it if I have the information I need? And so we'll see. It's, uh, you know, I feel, I feel kind of somewhat relieved that I don't have to just get behind one frame of mind or one mentality because I, again, I, I'm yeah. a big believer that uh, there's a lot of nuances to each of these businesses. And to your point, B2C versus B2B, yeah. heavy industrial manufacturing, media and entertainment and yeah. sports and being in venue. Those requirements are, are much different than yeah. I buy a bunch of products, I put them in a warehouse and my inventory can sit around for three months. And yeah. you know, the inventory for media and entertainment is pretty perishable, right? I it mean, is. I can't, if I don't sell that seat today, yeah. I can't sell it tomorrow. That's right. Yep. Same yep. as travel, right? Sure. If I if I don't uh, if I don't fill the plane today, yeah, that seat, it just it expires. It's like yeah. a, a a bad black banana that I can't sell. Yeah, no doubt about that. No, it's it's first and foremost. I, I was chuckling to myself. It, it uh, had this image of. Uh, dead data lake projects lying on the bottom of an actual lake, like Lake Michigan, like the wreckage of all those ships, you know, Edmund Fitzgerald or something like, you know, it's, I cannot tell you, Michael, at, at Gartner, the kind of, it was like a more counseling than actual stewardship and guidance. It was kind of, you know, yeah, I hate to tell you this. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to map this data lake project to any tangible goals or objectives. You may want to just like pull the ripcord and tell the, uh, Apache guys to go home at this point, you know, and is that like, we're a year and a half in like, yeah. Okay. So, well, just think about it. Talk to you next yeah. month. <laughs> so, yeah, I know it's, it's, you know, incredibly, you know, good points you make. And I, I think you bring this background to your clients now in uh, an incredible way. And I, I think they're going to benefit from working with you and gaining this type of insight that you've come through on the journey that we discussed. And I, I, you know, listen, like I say, I'm, I've always benefited from speaking to you on these things and I always learn something and it's, uh, we don't always agree on everything actually, you know, and off mic, I think we, we get into it, you know, and I think that's part of the, uh, call it, you know, Socratic crucible that we put each other through. And I, I've, I've always enjoyed that about you. And I like the, I like the challenge you bring to to my ideas. So this is this has been incredibly rich conversation. I wanted to you do some things, you know, in your personal life that I find very interesting and back to embracing that idea of risk taking. I think you bring a lot of that willing to do 
intrepid things to your personal life, you know, in terms of bringing that positive change to the world. I wonder if you might, you know, talk a little bit about, uh, I believe you and your wife uh, work on this endeavor, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you kind of yeah. delve, delve into that, please. Well, there are two things, uh, well, three, and we've already talked about one of them, but outside of my professional life, uh, my, my world re outside of my family revolves, and included with my family, revolves around three things. One is food, uh, the other is baseball, and the third, which is what you're re referencing, is the work that my wife and I do uh, here in Oakland with the animal rescue. Yeah. Uh, back in 2016 was where we started our journey. We had already had adopted a dog in 2011. We Before 2010, we lived in a home that didn't allow pets and we always wanted a dog. So we adopted our first rescue in 2011, which was, you know, ROG and our, our family pet. And then 2016, my wife and I were in New York. We were having dinner uh, while I was at a trade show and we got a email alert about a dog that had been uh, surrendered was possibly mm. going to be euthanized ah. and he was a senior dog that it was really a, quite a, a, a awful story in that yeah. he was what's known as a survivor mm. which means his owner passed away ah. and the family had given the real estate agent instructions to euthanize the dog oh my and the real estate agent wouldn't do that because she was also involved in this particular rescue. Yeah. So uh, that was our first foray into rescuing senior dogs. At that mm -hmm. time, Skipper was 12 years old. Uh, and Skipper was with us for a little less than two years. And then in 2017, uh, when Skipper passed, uh, we then got our next senior rescue, Bella. And ever since that, over the past few years, we've been very involved in fostering and adopting dogs that yeah. get passed over because they're yeah. a little bit uh, longer in the tooth, a little bit grayer. And they're, uh, they're, there's a, a yin and a yang to it. Uh, and, that, and that is, uh, we know that we're giving the, the pet a home for the rest of their life. Uh, but it, it can be kind of challenging and difficult because you get close to these animals and <sighs> you know that you only have a limited time with them. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's very rewarding. Uh, we right now, as we, as we opened our show and Milo made his appearance, you know, I've got three dogs all over 10 years old in my house and, we love it, and uh, we take some of the dogs that are in the yeah. rescue that have not been adopted or fostered yet. We'll take them on field trips, oh. uh, let them get out for a few hours, uh, and do whatever we can to support the overcrowded animal rescues that we have oh. here. And it's well documented that yeah. all the rescues across the United States right now are are challenged with space and uh, yeah. It's just an awful situation. So we're doing yeah. our best 
to try to alleviate as much of that pressure and uh, take care of as many dogs and uh, and get a few of them out uh, every now and then. And uh, and one other quick note: uh, our uh, our rescue from twenty twenty two. His name is King. Yeah, he's an eighty pound pit bull. He is the sweetest dog you've ever met. Oh, and uh, he is now. Uh, he also has only one eye because he oh. had a very infected eye that had to be taken. Uh, uh, he is now a uh, certified therapy dog. So he goes oh, wow. to schools and senior assisted living homes and uh, makes the day a little bit brighter for some of those uh, residents and students and uh, that's another great thing that, uh, and my, my wife is primarily involved, but uh, I'm I'm also involved in some of these activities, but that's another great. great thing that we're able to give back is, uh, is how King has now become a therapy dog. And he's got a great story because he was found uh, tied to a pole here in the streets <laughs> of Oakland and nobody knows what his history is, but he is a very well-behaved, uh, sweet, very large, older gentleman. <laughs> oh, that's that's fantastic. I uh, what is there? Um, I assume there's a if we can put a link up if people are so inclined, they can go uh, donate. I'm sure any kind of, you know, even small financial resources, people can move uh, towards the yeah, shelters three, direction here in, in my area. There are yeah. three that we support. Yep. Uh, one is the primary one is Oakland Animal Services. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the other is uh, Hop Along Rescue. Yeah. And then the third, which is, uh, I donate. I don't. We don't do as much work with, but we support. Mm -hmm. Is called uh, yeah. ARF, A R F, Animal yeah. Rescue Foundation. Yeah. And there's a little uh, ARF. Uh, since we're baseball guys, uh, ARF is Tony Larusa's, uh, the former yeah. manager of uh, the Cardinals and the yeah. Dodgers A's. and the A's. Yep. Uh, that's his. Uh, it, he, it's well known that he's very involved in animal rescue. Oh, and he awesome. has his own. It's called, and, and that's that's his ARF. Good, good. No, that's that's. I'll see. We'll put uh, some links up in the the little you know header section there, and and if people are so inclined, you know, please encourage you to go uh, donate either time or money or you know whatever things that you you may be able to to send to uh, to those three organizations. Way uh, definitely want to call out you know, your new endeavor, Klein for Retail, and really encourage people to reach out to Michael for all things. We're just scratching the surface. I mean, it, it, uh, there's so much to talk about and so little time, you know, I hate to, um, kind of truncate this, but, uh, I really encourage, you know, folks who are building out in any sort of, uh, capacity against, uh, your retail CPG, uh, or luxury go-to-market objectives. Michael's the guy, in my opinion, and I highly recommend uh, engaging him at least for you know initial consultation. Make sure you're headed in the right direction on uh, building out the Martech stack, uh, figuring out you know what makes more sense: a bias towards retail bricks and mortar, a bias towards online, etc. Michael's the guy to answer these questions for you. So we'll we'll also put a link up on how to uh, how to engage Michael there. Other than that. Michael, this has been a lot of fun, obviously very illuminating. Um, 
again, as I say, we always, I learn something every time I talk to you. You know, why? Uh, let's do this again when we kind of get through the Q4 shopping season. We can kind of evaluate and do a little post-game uh, armchair quarterbacking, right? As we're uh, inclined to do as sports fans and uh, and fans of uh, of business, and love to have you back. And we'll kind of do a recap once yeah. we get through let's the season. Do, let's do a Valentine's episode and we Love can it. wear red and it'll be after the holiday season and after the Super Bowl. Perfect opportunity, I think. Definitely. That would be perfect. Look forward to it. Well, thanks for coming on the on the podcast today. Um, look forward to our next conversation. Really appreciate your time and sharing with us as you have. No, thanks for having me. It was <laughs> it was a lot of fun and I know we'll be uh speaking outside of this podcast in 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 the very near future. So guaranteed. Guaranteed. All the best to you and your family for the holidays. Yep. Likewise. Have a good one.